So I'd like to start out with a bold statement of truth. Uh, I absolutely love uh, Colorado. Anybody else? Um, I, I had the privilege on uh, the last few days, just got back this morning, my cousin, first cousin who I'm really close with called me uh, several months ago, said, hey, Mark, uh, we're going to get married in Colorado. I said, sweet, uh, on a Monday. And I said, okay, you don't, don't hear too many Monday weddings. And so uh, my wife and I flew out on Sunday uh, in Boulder, actually, was where the wedding was. It had to get moved because of the forest fires. Did you guys hear about all that? Uh, good. You're really attuned to the news, so that's good. And, um, but yesterday I, um, I told my wife, I'm like, look, I need to, I need to go to the, to the motherland. And uh, she said, well, she, she said, well, where's the motherland? And I said, Breckenridge. And, uh, Breckenridge is like a second home to me. Uh, for those of you guys that, uh, know, we used to take, uh, big ski trips to Breckenridge and I'll be the first to announce that we are going back there this winter uh, as a church. So if you're interested in going skiing with us, stay tuned for details. Pretty exciting. It's the official announcement. Um, that's right. That's right. So, um, so I'm like, hey, let, let's go to Breckenridge. And so uh, we're driving, and uh, to get to Breckenridge, you literally take Interstate 70. So you can start in St. Charles, you're aware, right? Interstate 70, and you can get off at exit 203, which is Frisco, and get to Bre- like all Interstate 70. And so this is what I was looking at on Google Maps, okay? Interstate 70 is there at the bottom. Uh, but then, because of some traffic of death, you guys know the Google map red line? You know? You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, anytime there's red on Google, it's like the earth is ending, okay? So, because there was some red, I told Heidi, even though she doesn't like driving through the mountains, I was like, look, let's take Highway 6. Like, it, it looks nice. It looks fruitful. It looks, you know, delightful. And, 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 and so, we got on Highway 6. And, man, I've driven, listen, I've driven in some very beautiful uh, pieces of the world. I've uh, some of our Ecuador trips, like you're on some of the craziest, most beautiful drives. This drive right next to Clear Creek on Highway 6 was insane. I mean, it was like my wife sitting next to me. We're just like worshiping next to like singing Hillsong United. The windows are down. The rapids are going. I look in the back and like there's kids singing Kumbaya. I didn't even know where they, where they came from, you know, like it, it, was, it was just beautiful. It was just a beautiful moment. And so, of course, we stopped by one of the rapids and took a selfie. This is yesterday. That's what's crazy. It's like we can be in Colorado yesterday and here uh, now. So take that down. Bad picture of me. Good picture of Heidi. Anyway, um, take that down, Andrew. Thank you so much. Um, so while I was, while I was um, in Colorado, and this is what always happens, and, and next to this, this rapid, um, there were several thoughts that came to my mind, and one of them I just, I just need to share with all of you. Sometimes you just need like a, uh, a perspective shift to remind you not to take something for granted. And I just, I found myself um, being unbelievably thankful for you. And I know that may sound strange to some of you because I haven't met you um, when we planted the church with six people in a basement in 2005, uh, we could have never guessed that God would grace us with the opportunity to get to journey with so many awesome people, um, crazy stories, stories of trial and how God's worked and stories of salvation and stories that are still not yet to be resolved. And I just want you to know uh, from my heart just how thankful I am uh, that you come and, and be a part of what God is doing here. 
I wish that you could see the insides of my heart. You would see me, uh, my heart beating fast. And so I'm, I'm very, very thankful. Sometimes you just need a change of perspective uh, to help you not take things for granted. And I hope that's what's ha- been happening for you in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen, uh, this started out as a five-week journey. It's, it's now going to be six weeks at least. We'll see how tonight goes. We may extend it to 10 or 12. Um, but it's been beautiful. And the main question that we've been wrestling with Uh, The main statement we've been journeying through is this statement right here. The resurrection of Jesus means nothing or everything. And for every single one of us here, there is no in-between. And so I want to help give you some gauges on whether or not the resurrection of Christ, the truth of it, the teaching of it, is transforming you. In other words, are we just coming here and hearing you know, nice, pleasant teachings from the Word? Are we we singing together? Or is the Lord really changing our hearts based on the reality that He's risen? And so answer these questions and process as you work this through in your heart. In light of the resurrection, have you, number one, found yourself looking at your life through the lens of a risen Christ? In other words, in the last couple weeks, have you found yourself coming to a moment where all of a sudden you could have been overtaken with like unbelievable amounts of stress. Or it could have caused you to go down a road mentally that would have led you like it did in the past to short-term depression. Or had you come to these moments and all of a sudden some of the very things that have caused you so much pain, now all of a sudden you're putting on the different lens that says, hold on a second, hold on a second, he is risen. I know it's not Easter, but, but he's, he's alive. And so this trial then gets put in light of the fact that my God is alive. This tribulation, this hurt, this confusion, this relationship, and on and on and on. Have you been putting your life in light of a risen Christ? And if so, then the word of God is not returning void. It's changing you. Listen, celebrate that, my friends, even right now. Number two, in light of the resurrection. Have you found yourself looking at the temptation to disobey God through the lens of a risen Christ? Have you come to some of those same addiction vices that you've gone to before? And have all of a sudden, in the face of this addiction, in the face of this eating disorder, in the the face of this pornography, in the face of this sexually charged relationship, in the face of this gossip or this judgment or this slander, and on and on and on, Have you found yourself all of a sudden grow a distaste for it because your God is alive? Listen, I believe because I've heard it. I've heard some dudes that have shared testimonies of literally coming to masturbate or not, look at pornography or not, and in that moment be overwhelmed with the truth of the resurrection of Christ and walk away in the victory of the Lord. That is what I'm talking about. If this is happening, then the power of the resurrection, the spirit that is inside of you, is being, it is transforming your heart, and it's something, my friends, to celebrate. How about number three? In light of the resurrection, have you worshiped and celebrated in victory? I told you guys last week, I'm tired of the seatbelt. We like, we celebrate and worship with, with tremendous, like, hindrance. Man, I want to I wanna make, sure, make sure I'm appropriate here. I don't want to dance in the aisle like David danced. I don't want to do this. Listen. Like, if he's alive, then I think that breeds a certain level of celebration in us. 
Now, the great thing is, as some of you look at these three things, you're like, nope, nope, and nope. I have not changed my perspective. My temptation has not been seen in light of the resurrection. And I definitely have not been worshiping and celebrating. And for all those of you who are in that camp, listen, the grace of God is real. So rest tonight. Not in shame and condemnation, but instead, what if tonight God took your heart and all of these things became your reality? I believe it to be true. I believe it can happen right now in this precise second. So open your Bibles to the next chapter, to part three of our journey in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to start where we left off last week in verse 19 and work all the way from verse 20 to 28. And I'm serious, guys. This text is insanely beautiful. I'm encouraged that you're here. Let's start here in verse 19. Check this out. Next slide. If in Christ... We have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. This is where we ended last week. You know why we're most to be pitied? Because we're fools. Because we actually believe things like the Romans passage to be true. Andrew, put up that Romans passage for me. Look at this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But if he hasn't been raised, and if we believe it and then live in light of it, the rest of the world can look on and say, you all are the biggest idiots on the face of the planet. You're fools. Like you dress up on Easter, you wear your colorful clothing, you listen to your you know, silly radio stations, you, you, you know, perform in this way and that way, you wear the masquerade when you're around each other, and all for what? All last week was the seven truths. If he has not raised then it means all of these things. And the last of which was that, that we're the, we're the most to be pitied. People should pity us because we are fools. But in one of the greatest buts of all of Scripture, which is a strange thing to say, I certainly understand, look at the power of verse 20. Look at this. Crazy. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Again, he's just gone through seven things that are true if he hasn't been raised. Then he says, let there be no mistake. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Really, really interesting after the comma. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits. Um, I started thinking about farming. Anyone else? How many, did anyone here grow up in a farm or is a farmer? Okay, Chelsea, sweet. Anyone else? We have two. Okay. Um, so I... I would love to, so what, what kind of things did you grow, Chelsea? What was like your farm, like, you grew, you grew everything, okay, pizza, okay, corn, beans, did you guys have any animals? Cows, awesome, that's awesome. I've longed to like see a real live cow on a farm, you know, like I really enjoy 2%, but I've never like just got to thank the cows for that, you know, um, so you may not know this about me. My wife grew up on a farm. Uh, her uh, dad still farms thousands of acres every year. My dad is the CEO of a big farm industry company. So I know it doesn't seem like it at all, but farming is, is kind of in a roundabout way in my blood. Okay. So I see the word first fruits and like all of my farming antenna go up. Here's why. The word first fruits has profound impact to an ancient Jew. Here's why. 
there was a feast that in some circles is called the Feast of the First Fruits. Well, can I tell you when the Feast of the First Fruits uh, was inaugurated? It was inaugurated the day after the Sabbath, after the Passover. I know, carry the one. Let me say that again, okay? The day after the Sabbath, ancient Jewish Sabbath is Friday night to Saturday night, after the Passover. So do you know what day that would make that? The Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead. The Sunday after the Passover, after the Sabbath, right? So now all of a sudden we're like, hold, hold, hold on. Like Jesus is the, the first fruits of those falling asleep. And now the imagery is starting to sink in. Uh, but not just that, first fruits in the Old Testament. It was, it was you, would, you would bring literally the best of your crops or at times the best of your animals to give, to give sacrifice. Uh, now, the thing that I know about farming, and again, I don't know a lot, and clearly we don't know a lot, okay? Uh, Chelsea does, and we're grateful for that. The thing I know about farming is when it comes time to harvest, it's go time. Like, you guys understand that, right? Like, right, Chelsea? I mean, when it comes time to harvest, like, your pops is out in the field. Do you ever see him in the harvest? No, because homeboy's out in a combine, right? It is probably GPS-guided combine, nonetheless. Oh, it's not? You're old school? Okay, praise the Lord. All right, now. Right, but when, but when it's harvest time, farmers get unbelievably urgent. Why? Because they don't know when the next rain is coming. They, they don't know what the weather's going to do. And so they know that because there is a harvest, the harvest needs to be reaped. Now, um, for Christ to be of the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, all of a sudden the imagery of what he represents in this great harvest becomes very, very clear. Uh, Here's what Jesus said, interestingly enough, in the Gospels. He's talking to the disciples, and he says this in Matthew 9. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You see, what happens at the resurrection of Christ, it's as if it begins this massive harvest under grace. I was around a couple situations in the last couple weeks where I was reminded the lostness of being lost. What I mean is, like, I was in situations where it was so unbelievably dark. Have you been there before? And it's not just like blatant sin is all around. You just walk into a situation, and because either you're with a bunch of non-believers, or you're in a dark setting, or uh, the power of what's happening uh, supernaturally and spiritually is really, really, really heavy... I was just in a couple situations where I could barely speak at times. I was getting upset to my stomach because of how dark it was. What started to be prompted in my heart then was an urgency. Not just that the harvest is plentiful, but I know the workers are few, and I long to be one of the workers. Christ's resurrection as the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep brings and ushers in this era of harvest, and yet I'm looking out at a massive harvest, lost people all over the place in desperate need of God's grace and love and our care, and yet I find the workers sitting on their hands, watching as others do all the work. And that was exactly the point that Jesus was making. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Can I just ask, why? If there's a great harvest then farmers know it is an urgent time. And I'm telling you, we don't have to wait for the next rain. It is time now. The harvest 
is now. So Jesus says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Jesus is this first fruit. Now, one last thing on it, because some of you might be confused. You're like, hold on a second. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, but I don't think he was the first one resurrected, right? Like, that's a problem. Remember Lazarus? Jesus was alive when Lazarus, and he, he was gone. Like, he gone, and then he rose. You guys remember that? Jesus resurrected him. How about the, the, the widow's son? The widow's son, he gone too, okay? And Jesus resurrected him. But when they, but when they were resurrected, they still eventually died. You guys understand, right? Lazarus rose from the dead, but then later he died. The widow's son resurrected, but then he later died. When Jesus resurrects, he takes on, uh, we could even say in this way, a resurrected body form. And so therefore, he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then verse 21 and 22 get unbelievably daunting. For as by a man came death, that's encouraging, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, I want to show you one of the biggest, like, how, did the, how does this work moments in the scripture, okay? We, we could even say, like, one, one of the ways that maybe we've gotten the raw end of the deal, okay? Check this out in Romans 5, okay? I hope this helps. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Like, how, how does this work, okay? Look at Adam's family tree. Not great, okay? Look at this. Here's his entire family tree. Okay? Adam rebels against God, and then everybody is a sinner, right? Like, imagine him sitting down with his relatives. Hey, I, re- I want to show you uh, my memoir, right? And so here's how this went down. Uh, I rebelled against God, and then all of the trillions of people that came after me are now sinners, you know? And like, this would be horrible, right? But, but this is exactly Adam. That's what the scripture's saying, right? Because one man sinned, then every single person, all of us included, who are his descendants, we are born sinners. I tell you all the time, kids are the greatest example, the greatest testimony to this fact. Listen, children don't come out of the womb speaking the things of Christ. They come out of the womb as boys wanting to punch people, okay? As girls, sometimes, yes, wanting to gossip about other people. You're like, how could that be true? Watch a two-year-old girl. Some of their first words out of their mouth are talking bad about the girl next to them, okay? I don't know how this happens. It's, it's just what we're born into, okay? Some of you girls are like, I don't struggle with gossip. I hope not, okay? All right? Then later you're like, can you believe Mark said that? I'll never talk to him about it. But that was like the worst thing ever. Okay. Next slide. Look at this. Next slide. Look at this. Now, here's what Galatians 4 says. As heinous, horrific, damaging, maybe we could even say, the the raw end of the deal that we got, look at Galatians 4. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, look at this, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive, what's the word? 
adoption as sons. One of the coolest things that's happening right now in our body is people are adopting children. It is so crazy encouraging to watch a family reap the joy of getting to adopt a son or daughter, often out of orphanage or out of a situation where mom or dad can't take care of them. So now look at this family tree. Here's our reality. We are descendants of Adam, born sinners. And what God has done is he has ruined this family tree. How? He has stepped into this family tree. And he has said, listen, I know you're a descendant of Adam. I know you're a sinner, and therefore, you're completely disconnected from me. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to step into that family tree, and I'm going to write you a new one. Now you're adopted. Now you're not Adam's descendant. Now, in Christ, you are my son and my daughter. You guys understand? So then all of a sudden, next slide. So now this starts to ring true. Look, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. It seems like we got the raw end of the deal when we were sinners because Adam was. But I I for one am going to say, I'll take that if I can also be alive through one that is Christ. You guys know what I'm saying? I'll take being born a descendant of Adam if I can be adopted through Christ by God and be given life. So here is your new family tree, my friends in Christ. Rebels against God, deserving death. God sends Jesus and all of a sudden that death becomes life. He writes a new family tree and that is one to be celebrated. That's one to sit back and say, Listen, I once was over here, but can I tell you what happened? He stepped in to the orphanage that I was in, and he has not just given me new life, but he has given me the best life I could ever imagine. Trials, pain, joy, and all. Powerful language. For as by a man came death, but by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. Speaking of, are you guys ready for some difficult stuff? Okay, no problem. Look at verse 23. But each in his own order, okay? Christ, hold on, hold on, hold on. The word order here, uh, can we take a second here? The word order is a military term, okay? And so it's like rank, it's, it's position. So what's going to happen now is, is Paul is going to give us the, the order of resurrection, okay? This is really, really interesting, in time kind of stuff. But each in his own order, look at this, Christ the first fruits first, Then at his coming, his second coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. How many of you have seen Left Behind? Anyone here? I've seen Left Behind. Okay. Um, Really, one of the biggest things we need in the church is like Left Behind support groups. You know what I'm saying? Anyone who has ever seen it before, we should just gather those people and pray together. You know what I'm saying? It's like, listen, I'm so sorry you ever saw that. Um, and I, listen, I love Kirk Cameron. He's a good dude. And, and, you know, it seems like a believer. Just a horrible movie in general, okay? And uh, the problem is when you start talking in time stuff, it starts to get really, really weird really, really fast. Why? Because there's varied perspective and thought 
on how it's going to play out. So let me now be really, really vulnerable and say this. Uh, the guys know this about me. I really struggle with talking about the end times. And I'm not saying it's, it's a good piece about me. I know it's something I need to work on. Here's why. I struggle caring because he's coming back and I don't know what else I need to know. Amen. You, like, so when people are like, so what do you believe about this? What do you believe about that? I'm, he's coming back. Like how it's going to work, how it's going to flesh out, I do not know. Uh, many scholars have debated it and argued about it. They obviously don't know. So why don't we just rest in the thing we do know? He's coming back. Like, so, so I struggle, okay? Now, that said, that said, I do believe, I do believe we need to see and understand some of the variant thought so that we can better understand how Scripture fleshed itself out, all right? So let's begin with Revelation 20. That's right, I said Revelation Some of you are like, whoa, revelation, okay. Notice I said revelation and not revelations, okay. One of the first first things, right, I see believers, uh, one of the first common mistakes. Hey, can we study revelations together? I'm like, well, listen, God love you. I want you to know it is not plural, okay. It It is ah, revelation, okay. All right, so that said, that said, here's Revelation 20. Then I saw, look at this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. That can't be good. (laughs) And a great chain, right? And look at this. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a, what's the word? Thousand years. All right. Well, here's what's happening. In the end times, we have to wrestle with this thousand years. There's all kinds of different thought on where these thousand years will land in reference to the return of Christ. Okay? But in that thousand years, apparently, according to Revelation 20, this is the only mention of it, okay? Satan is bound in verse 3 and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while, and we'll see that releasing here in just a skosh. Now, there are three different thoughts on where this thousand years lands, and here are those three, okay? Pre-millennialism, ah-millennialism, and post-millennialism. Okay, I said that flawlessly. I can never do that again, so don't ask, all right? Now, let me try to describe you what's going on. A premillennialist believes that Jesus will come back in his second coming. He will bound Satan for a thousand years, and then he will rule and reign on this earth. There are some resurrections that will happen, a part of that. We'll discuss those in the next couple weeks. But that's what a premillennialist believes, okay? That Jesus comes first. Then the thousand years happens, and then we have the final battle, okay? The post-millennialists believe, you can take a guess, okay, that the thousand years happens, and then Jesus comes back uh, somewhere in the end of all of that. He was ruling and reigning for that thousand years from heaven, okay? Then he comes back at the end of the thousand years and takes care of business. Now, the amillennialists is like a hybrid of the two, okay? 
Uh, they believe that Jesus is reigning from heaven and that there's kind of a mixture of both theories. Now, I've watched video. I've read um, paragraphs and paragraphs from all sorts of the best theologians in our culture, and they all disagree. Because the scripture really, at the end of the day, is not clear. Now, if I'm putting my heart on the table, I'll tell you what I kind of want to happen is I kind of want the Lord to come back. You know what I'm saying? And so I want him to come back. He rules and reigns on the earth. Satan is bound. Final victory. Wham, bam. We all celebrated victory, right? Like, that's kind of what I want to happen. But we'll see how it all fleshes out. But that's what Paul is starting to portray. He's starting to show that there's an order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then he says in verse 24, comes the end. Look at this. When he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. No matter what you believe about what happens on the thousand years, believe this. He destroys every other authority, every other power, every other thing that ever thought they had victory, he conquers it. And so of all of the confusion and all of the question, the evading thought is that he wins. And I love the language of verse 25. Check this out. This is crazy. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies, what? What? Come on. Under his feet. Now. You guys know I was a football player in high school. One of my favorite feelings, one of my favorite feelings uh, was running the option. We ran the option, which means the quarterback gets to run a lot, okay? Uh, often what happens in the option is, um, is I'm running like right at big defensive ends. And a lot of times they would tackle me in the end, in, in the end zone, right? And, and so we would get there. And one of the greatest feelings was when this 275, you know, five-pound huge defensive lineman thinks he's just literally broke my back, okay? And he's still laying down. I'd love to be the first to get up while he's still laying down, looking up at me. And I love just to give him the eyes to say, I'm perfectly fine. How are you doing down there? Would you like some help, large man? You know, like, I, like I, I love that. Okay. Now, what, what happens in my house, okay, not just that, what happens in my house is my boys are really into lightsabers, okay? You guys know a lightsaber, okay? All right, maybe some of you have seen Star Wars, hopefully not Pokemon Go. Anyway, so with, with, with lightsabers, okay, no one has won. No one has won. I mean, these, these guys are fighting back and forth. Blood is starting to come out of orifices. I mean, they're just going at it. No one has won until one of the siblings is laying on the ground, completely exhausted and defeated, and the other brother steps on his chest, lightsaber in the air, in victory. That's when someone has won, you know? And I welcome it. I'm like, kids, do it. Like, this is good. This is healthy, right? Don't let anyone die, but nearly that will be perfect, okay? There's a powerful, powerful image that comes in the thought that somehow the victor is standing over top his enemies. And so when scripture says in this very powerful image, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, it is this crazy, powerful portrayal of a king and a kingdom and what kind of king and what kind of kingdom he is. And then verse 26 says this, the last enemy, though, 
in spite of cancer, in spite of disease, in spite of chaos, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Here's what Hebrews 2 says on the matter. Look at this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus left heaven, took on flesh and blood. In another place in Hebrews, so that he could sympathize with our weaknesses. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now, one of the questions that I love answering more than any from my kids are when my kids say, Dad, why does God let Satan live? And they ask me this because I've just, I've just told them that God is awesome and that Satan is bad. And I've been talking about how powerful God is. And I've been talking about how God wins and Satan ultimately will lose. And so, so then the next natural question from a seven-year-old's mind is, then, then, Dad, why does God allow Satan to exist? It's one of those moments where I'm like, I, I kind of, I'm looking down, and then I just look up at my kids a little smirk out of the, you know? I'm just like, oh, you guys would like to talk a little theology, would you? Okay. Right? And I kind of like dramatic pause it with them for a second. They're like, hey, like, why is Satan alive, you know? And then I get to share what I'm going to share with you. What kind of king would allow his enemy to have perceived power so that he could conquer him? Only the real king. I get to look my kids in the eye and say, kids, listen, God has allowed Satan to exist, to have power even over death, to have even a, a sense of ruling, like Ephesians says, the ruler of the kingdom of air. God has allowed all of these things so that he can show what kind of king and what kind of kingdom he runs. He runs one that conquers death. He runs one that ultimately will put all of his enemies in subjection underneath his feet. My kids, listen, this is what our God is. And I'm just looking my kids in the face like, Daddy, you're scaring us. And I'm like, but it's awesome. (laughs) But it's awesome. And I look at you now in the face of some of the horrific power that Satan does have, that many of you have taken for granted. And I think that the enemy loves, loves, loves when we fall into the trap of negating him altogether. What I've learned is he loves the best when he can be sly like a serpent, when he can't exist as the father of lies and deception, when he can fly under the radar. It's when we give him credence. When we know ultimately our king will have victory and does have victory over Satan. But when we understand that our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities of this dark age, when we understand Satan does have power, now all of a sudden we find ourselves in the battle of recognizing where all the powers sit. One power will sit conquered, one power will sit as the conqueror, and that conqueror is our king. So the end of this Hebrews passage, and not just that, verse 15 says, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He will win. So Revelation 20 starts with the thousand years. And then can we just sit 
in this beautiful picture for one second. And when the thousand years are ended, Revelation 20, verse 7, Satan will be released from his prison. Not power on his own. Even the word released implies that he's only released because someone has released him. And he'll come out to deceive the nations. That's what he does. That are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over uh, the the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. Not only did they surround the camp of the saints, but they also surrounded the beloved city. But look, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. He's released, maybe finally perceived freedom. Satan can now exist in this full way that he's been existing now. Fire comes down and consumes them. And the beautiful piece of verse 10, look at this, so, so awesome. Next slide, please see this. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. That's not good. Where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. And what's the word? Ever. The Greek word there means ever. There's no end. There's no end. That's our king. That's our kingdom. Allowing Satan to exist only to show that he has the power to conquer not just death, not just Satan, but all of the enemies of God. Um, Do you find yourself as an ally to the Lord? Or tonight do you walk in here knowing full well that ultimately you are still a descendant of Adam and an enemy of God? I don't say this like to now bring hellfire and brimstone sort of teaching, but to bring the hard facts to a very scary reality. If you are an enemy of God, then right now there's only one place that that leads, and that's death. But the crazy truth is that the harvest of grace is still alive. That means that some of you who have come here as an enemy of God can leave here as a subject and servant of the king. And so in light of that truth, let's look at the power of verse 27. Check this out. For God has put all things in, interesting word, subjection under his feet. This is talking about Jesus. So God has put all things underneath the authority of Christ. That's why Jesus told the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so therefore go now and make disciples. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Carry the one, a little bit different, a little bit difficult language. Here's what he's saying. God has put everything underneath the authority of Christ except himself. Now, verse 28 brings so much clarity. Look at this. When all things are subjected to him, Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. 
So in other words, what happens is Jesus puts himself willingly underneath the Father for the glory of the Father. Now let's look at this word. Next slide, highlighted in yellow, okay, for your viewing pleasure. This word subjected is this in the Greek. Next slide, okay, it's hupotasso. Everyone say it with me, come on. Hupotasso, okay, well done, Greek scholars. Now, here's what it means. To arrange under, to subject oneself, to obey, or to submit to one's control. Now listen, Christ wins. He wins the battle. His enemies are under his feet. Every ruler, every authority, he has just conquered. And then what happens is he submits himself, just like he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember? Jesus is praying and and, and drops of blood are coming from his forehead and he cries out to God and says, is there any other way, is there there any other cup? But then he says, "Not, not my will, but your will be done. He puts himself willingly underneath the king. Now does Jesus rule and reign? Yes, he sits at the right hand of God the Father. Is the Trinity co-equals? Yes, God is Father, God is Son, and God is Spirit. All co-equals, all God. But Jesus, as the Son, puts himself underneath the rule and reign of the kingship of God, and now all of a sudden sovereignty becomes more than theological banter. Now the veins run deep. Next slide. Let's say it this way. The risen, reigning Christ submits to God the Father in his life, his death, and resurrection. So what about us? Have any of you guys seen the BFG? Yeah, have any of you guys seen the Disney movie? Okay, good, four of you. Um, there's a scene in the movie where the, the queen, uh, the, is it Queen Elizabeth the England queen? Does anyone know? The Queen of England, whoever she is, okay? There's a scene that involves her. It's amazing to me to think about if we had a king or a queen in America. Because the way people were responding in this movie, and I know it's, I know it's accurate, okay, uh, to the queen is insane, right? Like, she walks in the room. I mean, everyone, like, everyone either bends the knee or stands up straight. She sits down at the dinner table. Everyone's, like, fixing all of her utensils, making sure she has enough water. Wherever she was going, people were turning and paying attention. That's what happens with royalty. Now, what I know to be true is I'm sure some of those subjects of the queen are serving her well in her face, but then behind closed doors, they're like, can you believe the queen? Like, she didn't like the broccoli, so we had to go back and steam it again, and then she didn't like the broccoli the second time. Who even likes broccoli anyway? It's green and a vegetable. You know, like, what's her problem? Right. And so behind closed doors, they're bad-mouthing the queen to her face, serving her well in pious acts of duty. I'm wondering if that's how the world views us. Yeah, they, uh, they serve their king when it's convenient. They serve their king, you know, when it is going to make themselves look all right in front of others. But behind closed doors, all they do is complain about how the commands of God are burdensome. I want to propose to you a very, very heavy truth that we're going to have to be confronted with right now. The power of the resurrection is seen in a king and his kingdom. A real king 
who has conquered every enemy, and now who sits ruling and reigning of a great kingdom. And yet, I believe many of you, myself at times, have taken this king and have made him instead to be a pawn. We get to move him around where we want. He's just kind of playing in our game. Ultimately, we take him off of his throne, put ourselves on it, and then bark out commands to a God who better bend his knee to us. And I know right away you're like, Mark, that's almost blasphemous even to say out of your mouth. Then why are we living like it? It feels worse to say it out of our mouth, and yet our life says double middle finger. Do you guys see the chasm? Do you see the problem? Again, we can say all day long, oh, we believe in the power of the resurrection. We believe in an empty tomb. If we believe in an empty tomb, then we get the joy of submitting to a king just like Jesus the Son, the Savior of the world, submits himself in humility under Father God, yes, co-ruling and reigning, but sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Is he just your pawn? Is he just in your game? Now, I want to pose some things that maybe you've done with this God. Let's go through these uh, step by step. To you, is God a king or a genie? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? You got this like special thing. Maybe it's even, listen, maybe it's even your Bible. I mean, you haven't talked to him weeks, months, some of you years. The right circumstance, the right situation, the right foxhole, the right hurt. Now all of a sudden you're like, go over to this prized genie possession. (sighs) Kind of blow the dust off a little bit. Oh God, I know it's been a while. And God, now, and you're like buttering him up with pleasantries that you don't even believe. Have you ever done that? Have you ever prayed prayers where you're like, I don't even buy this? Have you ever prayed prayers like that? Where you're like, God, almighty, righteous king of the r- ruler of the universe, you know? You're like, I've never said that in my life, you know? Like, have you ever done that? Yeah, because we get to these moments and it's like we got to all of a sudden, you know, rub the, the canal of the genie so that God pops out and then we'll do whatever we want him to do. That's not a king. That's not a king. I want to bring clarity to your confusion. If that is your image of God, that is not a God of the scriptures at all. It's not a king. To you, next slide. Is God a king or a palm reader? What I mean is, a lot of you, especially in this season of some of your lives, you just want God to show you your future. And so it feels like almost every day you just come to him again. All right, Lord. So I know yesterday was a little rough for you. You you couldn't quite read it right. You said I was going to meet the man or the woman of my dreams, but last night didn't go so well, okay? They were the man or the woman, and they were in my bad dreams, all right? I need some better ones, Lord, okay? And it's like God has just become for you this, hey, Lord, so can you take care of my future kind of thing? 
And you come to him thinking that, you know, somehow be, because and when it's convenient for you, he's just going to shape that. That's not a king. That is a hired hand. You, you understand the difference? It's when you go and pay someone to sit and read your palms. That's then what God becomes and not a king. A king is someone who allows an enemy to exist to only then conquer him to show his true rule and reign. That is a king. To you, thirdly, it's got a king or a blessing dispenser. I really wanted to say Pez dispenser. And it's funny, isn't it? But seriously, that's how some of you have made God out to be. Go to him like he's got some like little candy for you. This is the whole premise of the whole prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel believes that they haven't been blessed already. Those who believe in the gospel know the blessing has already happened because they've been extended grace in Christ. You see what I'm saying? God has already overwhelmed you with something you did not deserve. He already said, here, you were a descendant of Adam. Now you can be my adopted son or daughter. I paid the price. The ransom's done. Now you're grafted in. All of that is at your access. The blessing has already happened. And yet some of us, certainly some in our culture, just go to the well of blessing. Give me, give me, give me. True story. You're like the four-year-old in Walmart as you're checking out. Seriously. Daddy, can I have the Skittles? No. Daddy, can I have the Snickers? No. Daddy, can I have 17 packs of gum? No. Daddy, can I have this blow pop? No. I mean, right? Well, how? No, none of these things are good for you. Let me define the blessing. Number four, this would be hard. I think some of you have made a deal with God. You've shaken hands on it. You try to make the deal legit. But God ultimately is your way out. Also, hey, God, here's the deal. Um, I've got some good terms, God, I think you'll appreciate. Um, you're going to go ahead and do the eternal thing for me. That'll be great. Thank you for that. Uh, my end of the bargain is, um, you know, I'm going I'm to do the thing. I'm going to be in attendance at your, uh, you know, your gatherings. I'm going to make some appropriate phrases at the right time. I mean, I'll even tell one or two people that I think you're probably alive. I'll sing some songs, sometimes in harmony, you know. I mean, God, I, I will do it. Deal? Sound good? Are we good? I get eternal life. You get half-hearted service. Is that, are we, are we all set? We square This is, I believe, the greatest epidemic of making a king a pawn is this right here. Is God, for some of you, is just, a, is just a way out. He's just a means to an end. Listen, can I just shake your reality for a second? That is not a king. That is just something that's going to provide you for something that you need. He's diminished down to just, again, be some sort of gift giver that have no terms at all. Listen, that is not a king. He's only a way out for some of you. And I'm telling you right now, you must be confronted with that truth. If you have diminished God to just be a way out, right now is the time to turn from that thinking.
And lastly, is God a king or was he a king? You see, we've been talking for the last three weeks about the power of the resurrection. And I more believe this now than ever before, that the implications of the resurrection do not stop. And yet our lives say, no, they stopped 2,000 years ago. Maybe for some of you, he was a king, but now he's dead. I'll never say that. That, will, that phrase will never, ever, ever come out of my mouth. In fact, I will say the exact opposite. He's alive, everybody. He's risen indeed. I'll shout it from the rooftops. But every single night, I will go back. And I will not just wrestle in my doubt. My life, my secret sin, my devotion will not be to a king who is God, who sent Jesus to adopt me. My devotion will lie yet again to Adam. To the rebellion against God. To the rebellion that the serpent told Adam and Eve, did God really say, has God just become a pawn? Let's stand together. Some of you with your mouth have blasphemed. Some of you have said words out of your mouth about God that you would never ever say to his face. Some of you have lived as Brandon prayed earlier this double kind of life. Some of you in every facet of your existence have been double burdening the Lord. Listen, there is no reason, there is no reason why he should extend grace. Can I tell you about our king? In the face of the rebellion, in the face of the middle finger that we've extended, in the face of our disobedience, in the face of what you have lessened him to, of what I have made him, in the face of how we've taken God and made him a pawn, he still says, listen, I love you. You have made little of me. But I can wash all of those sins white as snow. You've mocked me. You've belittled me. You've defamed me. You have literally to the world revealed that I do not in any way, shape, or form, have a piece of your heart. But guess what? Grace. Grace upon grace. And so what if tonight, this song that has become so powerful in our culture, all of a sudden took new meaning because you took a second just to understand what the stanza, the verse, was saying. Check this out. I hear the Savior say, the Savior, the King, the one who's risen and reigning, the one who has conquered all enemies. I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small, right? 
looking again in the face of our weakness. And here's what he beckons. Child of weakness, watch and pray. And it's as if the writer of this ancient hymn read verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 15. And find in me thine all in all. Listen, we've made a mockery of that. We have found in God some in some. But listen, he is all in all. He has conquered. He has destroyed. He will win. Our sin has no match for an empty tomb. Disease and cancer and sickness and divorce and prostitution and your gossiping mouth have no, have no even ability to stand up against an empty tomb. He's conquered it all so that tonight we can say, God, we have made less of you. But Lord, we long, we long in our lives for you to be all in all. As we sing, repent of making him a pawn. God, come now. Stir us to repentance. I pray that we would submit to your kingship. I thank you for your kingdom. And I pray right now that hearts beat fast because what we have heard you say is that even in our weakness that there is through you hope. Wash our sins. White as snow, God. <laughs>